This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Jason Clay is back on Farming the Countryside, and the conversation is always interesting and thought-provoking. We discuss how COVID has impacted food production and consumption, and how the pandemic is changing how farmers will be asked to farm. What are the key forces driving that change, and how can farmers adapt? It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. You've been hearing me talk about the field trials we've done for the past two years with Pivot Bioproven. You may remember Pivot Bioproven adheres to the root of the corn plant and creates a mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. It's a weather-resistant and sustainable way to achieve more predictable and more productive yields than ever before. In 2021, we're looking at how Pivot Bioproven can help supply the corn with the nitrogen it needs throughout the season, and that hopefully means the use of less synthetic nitrogen in the future, saving us money while still supplying the corn the nutrients it needs. Pivot Bioproven may change the way you think about nitrogen, I hope you'll check it out and learn more by going to pivotbio.com. I always look forward to the conversation with our next guest. Let me provide some background info that helps set up our interview. Jason Clay grew up on a small farm in northwest Missouri, doing the work a lot of farm kids would do, bucking bales in the summer, as he'll share in a moment. He has literally traveled around the world, spending much of his time working on issues surrounding farmers and food. Today, Jason is Senior Vice President of Markets at the World Wildlife Fund. The WWF is interested in how food can be produced more sustainably, and who better to look at those issues than someone from the farm. You'll notice Jason spends a good amount of time talking about climate change, It's a topic that is top of mind for many food companies, consumers, and world governments as they weigh in on the way food is produced. And that can mean everything from carbon programs, payments for sustainable farming methods, market programs from specific food companies, and much more. And with the impact of COVID in the world, we focused on how those major drivers are perhaps changing the way farmers will be asked to farm. Jason Clay joins me again. Always good to visit with Jason. Always have some great topics to talk about. You know, Jason, you have been on this program before, but for those that may not have heard you, just give them the thumbnail sketch of how a kid from uh, rural northwest Missouri, small farm there, winds up in D.C. You've taught at some uh, uh, very prestigious places, and now uh, your current job, some may think, uh, well, what's that have to do with agriculture? But it has a lot to do with agriculture. So I'll let you kind of give them the the quick bio uh, behind your life and, and your route to where you are today. Thanks, and, and thanks for inviting me back. I guess that that actually is a tribute in some way to the interest of your audience in some of these these topics. So I, I grew up on a very small farm with uh, about, I think there were seven of us, and um, we lived on less than a dollar a day. This was a long time ago and what feels like a century ago in terms of, of actual time. But um, it was clear that there wasn't going to be a future for me in farming. And so I uh, did what I could to get a scholarship. And, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. I ended up going to college and, um, and studying um, 
mostly in Latin America and mostly with small farmers and, and did a lot of work on small farmer decisions and what affected those decisions and went to graduate school and tried to work in the USDA um, and it just didn't quite work out and then uh, taught at, um, at Harvard and that really wasn't very interesting to me because I wanted to kind of keep learning and what I realized over the course of my career is that everything that I did kind of always went back to food and agriculture and farmers and particularly small farmers. I worked with refugees. I worked with famine victims. Uh, and most recently I've been working uh, with WWF an environmental organization. And, and what we, what I found is that basically the biggest impact on the planet by far of any human activity is where and how we produce food. And so my goal and, and that of, of WF is to try to figure out how to produce food more sustainably because we've got to have food, but we also need a planet. Uh, and with climate change, things are getting a lot more complicated in terms of, of both how we maintain biodiversity and ecosystem services that we need, but also how we produce the food we need. When you were on last time, we talked about some of these changes. We talked about how climate change affects what we grow, where we grow. And then we talked about companies and certainly how they're marketing. But when we last talked, we were just beginning to get into the this COVID situation. Of course, now we can look back at at least 16 months or, or more on the situation. So I just wanted to simply start by getting your opinion on has the COVID situation, not only in the U.S., but in the world, sped up the process of how we change and, and market food, transportation, those sorts of things, or slowed that down, or maybe it's both at the same time, and we've seen some things progress rapidly and other things at a standstill. I'm interested in your thoughts now as we're about a year and a half into this. Yeah, I think when I was when I spoke to you last time, I had just begun a, a listening tour where I ended up speaking to about uh, 80 or 90 CEOs from different food companies around the world to find out how they were being affected by, by the pandemic and what the actions they were taking, where they saw it going, how long they thought it was going to be uh, in effect. And it was clear that, that there were various uh, levels of awareness about, about the pandemic. In fact, I'd say probably all of us have had various levels of awareness about just how long or how severe or how, how difficult this is going to be. But I think in the end, most of them ended up laying off people if they were in the, you know, the food service business or restaurant business or, or in the food world where people had to come uh, to sit in public and, and eat. Uh, that, just, that just went away. Uh, and so they had to reinvent themselves, those companies. And they often did it by beginning to process food for retailers and, and brands. We also saw, though, and I think this may be one of the long-term benefits of the pandemic is people learned how to cook. And I think they also developed a real appreciation for why food and those who work in the food industry are an essential service. I think that's a term that's thrown around a lot, but I, I think when you're worried about whether there's going to be food in the grocery store or not, it, it does make you really appreciate those that, that make sure that there is. So all of that has, has I think, changed for the better. But I think one of the big takeaways that came up time and again in my interviews with companies is that they see they see the pandemic really as a, a kind of trial balloon for the impacts of climate change, because they think the impacts of climate change are really going to be fairly similar. They're going to be rolling impacts. They're going to vary from place to place and from time to time. Uh, it's not going to be uniform all across the planet, 
but it is going to be disruptive. And we've got to learn how to plan with that disruption in mind because with climate change, it's not just a two, three, five-year pandemic. It's going to be decades long, so uh, maybe even a century. So that, that really changes, I think, the way we have to think about, about food. There are a couple of things there I want to probe a little bit on. One is you mentioned about workers in, in the food industry. Do you think after we come out of this, uh, maybe even while we're still kind of dealing with the COVID situation, that we will look at those workers differently in that right now it's sometimes difficult to find folks to, find, to fill those roles. Is that totally based on wages? Is that competition with other industries? And do you think that that then changes the overall price of food or how we uh, deliver that food, transport it, get it to where it needs to be. Certainly, we see a lot of places that need work and or workers. Uh, how has that fundamentally changed in the last eighteen months? Yeah, you know, I think I think a lot of it is is wages. I think I I think companies are beginning to see that the true value of the food system is far more than the money that it generates today. And that, it, that a lot of the value of the food system is actually externalities. So labor issues, social issues uh, that turn out to be negative. I mean, we have more poverty in food producing areas than anywhere else on the planet. We have more stunting and malnutrition in food producing areas. And that's in part, at least, due to, to prices that are being paid for commodities. And that in turn, a lot of producers can pay for the people that they, that they hire. So I think I think that's one of the issues, but but generally, when you start talking about the food system being worth more than it than it's actually showing up as as exchange goods, a lot of companies think, well, there's money to be made there. In point of fact, I think where the money needs to be transferred more and more is is upstream in the primary production. Uh, we've got to figure out a way to make farming attractive, and I would say livable, uh, not just bearable, as it were. Uh, and we've also got to figure out a way to, to get, you know, farm labor uh, recompensed in a way that makes it an attractive option rather than maybe a last resort. Let me just give you one example, because it, it, it affected me when I, I just thought through this. As a kid, we would be paid 50 cents an hour. That was kind of the child wage, if you were, uh, for doing farm labor, even for women, for girls, for doing household labor and stuff. Um, if you, you know, were doing hay in August and it was a dusty barn, you might get paid a dollar an hour, uh, but not necessarily. It really depended on the farmer. If you take that 50 cents and look at what the value of that is today, it's about $8.30. The minimum wage in many places is seven fifty. Now, when I was getting paid that wage, I didn't have to pay for my food. I didn't have to pay for a house. I didn't have to pay for kids or medical or any of that stuff. This was funny money. This was money I could use. I could save to go to college. I could do whatever with. But all of my expenses were taken care of. But now labor actually has to figure out how to do that on, on you know, the equivalent of what a child wage was 50 years ago. So how do you think then that that transfers upstream? You mentioned that. Is it through some of the programs that we see that might be more sustainable farming methods, the carbon programs that we see out yeah. there, and, and who will drive that? Is that the, the companies that, you know, will get that food out to uh, retailers, grocery stores, or will that be more consumer driven that they will demand that we have food that is produced in a certain way, or perhaps it's, it's a combination? Yeah, 
You know, I, I helped Ben and Jerry's create Rainforest Crunch, an ice cream flavor that was one of their bestsellers. And our motto was, you know, let, let consumers vote with their pocketbooks. But I've kind of changed my tune on that. I think getting 7 billion or 8 billion consumers to do anything is a pretty heavy lift. I think that our goal ought to be to try to get every, every product on the shelf to be more sustainable and, and really not give consumers bad choices. Now, what that means is we've got to figure out what the actual costs of production are, and those have to be, have to be part of the food system. I worry that if we bring all those in and in the price of commodities, it's going to jack the price up if we, if we have the same kind of accounting systems that we do today. So now I think it might be smarter if we can take some of these environmental management uh, fees, things like carbon or, or soil organic matter or uh, reduced soil erosion or reduced input use or, you know, set-asides for habitat or biodiversity, um, clean water coming off of properties or, you know, year-round downstream flow. All of those are services that farms provide. Uh, they're not being paid for them today. Uh, and, and rather than just say, we're going to put everything on 32 black, let's focus on soil carbon. I think we need to think about a, an environmental management fee to farmers for what they're doing. I think we're going to see a time in the, in the next few decades where farmers begin to make a significant amount of money from these kinds of services that they're providing, not just the food that they're producing, whether it's sequestering carbon, reducing emissions, uh, avoiding emissions altogether, or whether it's what they pay their labor or other things that also are part of a viable system and, and, and important for local communities. So, so we've got to rethink that. And I think the one thing that I would say that came out of, of COVID is that companies are thinking about this a lot more than they ever have in the past. And, and I think it's legitimate. I think they're concerned. They're concerned about uh, the, the instability of really long but efficient supply chains, especially when they break. They're concerned about the resilience of production and whether there's going to be food. Uh, they're concerned about whether they have to have redundancy in their supply chains. Do they need to buy from Brazil and the U.S. and, and some part of Southeast Asia just to make sure they get food every year? Uh, so I think there's a lot of thinking going on and openness that there's never been. Since January 1st, I've met with about 70 CEOs in the, in the global food space, and I've got probably that many meetings lined up before the end of the year. They are genuinely curious about what to do. They're asking questions. They're asking a lot of the right questions. But here's the deal. When somebody puts a fork in it and said the pandemic is over, whether that's in 22, 23, 24, 25, we don't really know. But at that point, the CEOs are going to make a decision about what they do. Hopefully, they're going to be making decisions together because we need, we need to have similar signals being sent into the marketplace to producers, et cetera, to trading companies as well so that we can have an efficient system. But once the, the CEOs make their decision about what they're going to do, then it's just going to be implemented. And then our ability to change it is going to be reduced a lot. So for the next 12 to 18 months, I think, is the period where we have the most room to influence the global food system. Uh, and after that, I think we're, we're, it starts to become written in stone. And then we'll have to wait for another big, big event like this to, to change it. 
Jason, you had a, a lot of good stuff to stay right there. So I want to go to what you said about the, the heads of those major food companies. Will they be the ones then that, in a sense, drive or tell us how it's going to be? What role will governments play in that? Certainly, we hear about, you know, government's going to step up and, and give a, a payment to farmers for certain methods. And then you mentioned about uh, farmers or others as influencers. How does that coalesce then over the next 12 to 18 months to begin to figure out, okay, what's this going to look like? How are we going to grow food and how are we going to set up these types of systems that would transfer some of this money back upstream to those that actually grow the food? Right. So I think, I think we need to look at what has worked in the past that could be tweaked or scalable. Governments generally don't work in 12 to 15 or 18 months time periods. They, they tend to take a lot longer than that, especially around things where there's a lot of unknowns, which of course the future is full of. Um, but, but I think that the one thing that you could say in the U.S. is that in the last 30 or 40 years with the CRP program, we have shown that, that farmers can take land out of production and produce more in absolute terms on the lands that's left than they used to produce on the entire farm. Now, what, what happened in that, that program was about 8% of land was taken out of production. And over that 30 to 40 year period, we produced between two and three times as much food on 92% of the land. But the big thing was we reduced soil erosion by 50% by taking 8% of land out of production. Now, we didn't allow farmers to grow carbon on that land. We, in fact, forced it that it be mowed. If we tweaked it just in that respect and allowed farmers to do whatever they could to increase the uptake of carbon, whether it's trees or tall grasses or whatever, without mowing it, then we, they would have had even more carbon to begin to sell at this point in time. But they'd also have habitat and biodiversity and other things. They would also be producing or contributing to cleaner water. Uh, you know, one th stat that just surprised the hell out of me was that 75% of people in Missouri drink out of the Missouri or Mississippi River. Uh, if you think about what happens when you have silt loads that are 10 to 20 times uh, what they were during the, the, the peak uh, CRP program, what is that costing society to clean that water? Um, what is that doing to the farmland to lose so much, so much soil, et cetera? I think we need to start getting these things priced in or at least systemically dealt with so that, that they don't become impacts that we have to try to fix later with other means. Jason, one of the things I enjoy about your weekly newsletter, and we want to be sure that folks know how to, to find that, they can read it online, is that you look at so many things from a global perspective. And we mostly, of course, in our conversation, focus on American agriculture. Certainly, that's what a lot of our listeners are, are doing. They're listening to the broadcast. But when you look at the rest of the world, how does this topic affect uh, you know other farmers around the world and how their production systems work? Are they better prepared for these changes or not so well prepared as we would be here in the U.S.? How do you see it? You know, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think they're any better prepared. I think some of the ways they have farmed might might make it appear that they have more resilience or more. Uh, room because of the relationship to markets, more time to change. But I think this is pretty much a global issue. I think we're being hit by 
rolling events and chronic temperatures and even what's becoming now chronic drought in some places that we haven't seen come and go as fast. We haven't seen the rapidity of this kind of, of change. Uh, and, and I do think that it's not just companies that need to talk to each other. I think it's farmers too. I think it's land grant universities. Um, I, the, the Dean of UC Davis called me at one point and said, you know, I've got, I've got three or four dozen faculty that are retiring. Who should I hire to become more climate uh, friendly, more have a, have a program that's able to help producers more around climate issues? And I got to thinking about it. I mean, I called some people together to talk with her, but I got to thinking about it. Every university in the country that works on ag has this problem and nobody's talking about it. So I think now that we've had the shot across the bow with the pandemic, we need to start creating platforms where farmers and researchers and, and professors and companies can start talking to each other, both, both the competitors, but also along the supply chains. Because sustainability and, and producing enough food is something that we all have to work on together. We can't afford to have everybody on their own steep learning curve. Um, as I tell my staff, I want you to make mistakes. I just don't want you to make mistakes that somebody else has already made. So it, before we run out of time here, we've talked a lot about changes that are coming and, and will be coming down the road. Is this a good time to be involved in American agriculture? Each of us get uh, worried about change, but should we look at this as great opportunity and then the livelihood that many of us have? Well, I, you know, it, it, there's good news and there's bad, right? Um, I think we're seeing a time where we have created some conditions where the planet is starting to degrade itself, where climate change is now drying out soils, whether they're being farmed or not, that climate change is actually degrading forest, whether, whether there's any logging going on or not. They're degrading uh, the food chain in oceans so that the fisheries are shrinking by 10 to 15 percent. Well, what that tells me is that if, if, if we're losing the natural resource base, if it's becoming degraded, we're going to have to work a lot harder just to stay where we are. Now, the ones that do that, you know, and I think for farming and ranching, it's all about maintaining or building soil organic matter. It's not just the carbon that's in the soil. It's also the ingress roots for water from the roots of, of previous crops. It's the mulch on the top. Uh, the leftovers from the previous crops that actually protect the soil is the cover crops. There are lots of ways to do it, but it's about managing that organic matter to remain competitive. And some farmers are, are really focused on that, and they're, they're going to they're gonna do well. Uh, and and if, you're, if you're not focused on that, then you're, you're going to have a lot harder time. Before we run out of time, tell folks how they can best uh, – communicate with you. You have a uh, weekly, I say newsletter. I mean, it's electronic, uh, but lots of good stuff where you're pulling different information sources and commenting on them about a, a whole host of ag issues and food issues around the globe. So if people want to know more and learn more about some of this, how's the best way for them to be able to do that? I think they should. I, I don't have a, a link in my head, but I think what they can do is either look me up on, on the internet and get a message to me or get on, on to our website at the Markets Institute at, at WWF 
and you can navigate and see what we're producing. We're producing, you know, papers on how U.S. Dairy is going to uh, has made a, a, a 50% reduction commitment uh, by 2050 and, and the strategy they're using because we want to get that information out to others. So there's a lot of information in there, but we do have a weekly uh, publication where we look at six different articles from around the world and talk about what they say, but also what they don't say or what they're missing or what how we need to think differently about that information. Jason, always so many questions and topics I don't have time to get to, but that just means we've got to do this again. I really appreciate the time. Well, I appreciate your, your interest in and quite happy to talk at, at any point. And if people want to send in questions, I'm happy to answer them later. I like the local and global perspective Jason can bring, showing how farmers are part of the global food system and how we might adapt to find opportunities in changing local food systems as well. We mentioned Jason's weekly email updates. You can find them at the Markets Institute on the World Wildlife Fund's webpage or just go to the Farming the Countryside page on Facebook. I'm putting a link there in the post for this broadcast so you can go directly to find his email updates. Jason's weekly email will provide you with information from around the globe that is impacting agriculture right here at home. As always, I appreciate you listening to our show. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.